0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to episode 20 in our series on world history. In podcast number 19, we started by discussing the advancement of the Byzantine East. We looked how the Roman Empire, the seat of the Roman Empire was moved there under Emperor Constantine who converted to Christianity in 313 AD and the Byzantine East or the Eastern half of the Roman Empire continued on truly for another roughly 1000 years. We then looked at how the harmony of the Eastern church was infuriating the political turmoil in the Western half of the former empire or in the world of Christianity. We saw the way the tension built until 1054 AD when a split created what is known today as the Eastern Orthodox Church. We then looked at the rise of Islam, and the Muslims. We looked at the impact of Muhammad, like we discussed Jesus Christ, because both of them were human. So we looked at the impact that they had in their time, as well as, of course, continuing on today by looking at the impact of life after Muhammad. And that's what we'll look at today, and then moving into these uh, further into this podcast, into the description of what we call the medieval world. So with that, we saw about how people were drawn to the straightforwardness of Islam. Remember, again, Islam translated as submission to Allah. A Muslim is one who submits. The break within the Islamic faith occurred not long after Muhammad himself died. The successor, or the caliph, Ali, was assassinated shortly after upon taking the reins as the head of the Church of Islam, or the Islamic faith. One group, however, because of the assassination, claimed that Ali was truly the Prophet's successor. They would be known as the Shiites. Another group claimed that that assassination was a sign that he was never intended to be the Prophet's successor, and therefore broke off with their own line of leadership, today the Sunnis. These two subgroups of Islam are equally drawn. Their members are equally drawn to the tenets, some of which we discussed in the last podcast, but also drawn because of they as they are committed to who was the proper line within Islam. Roman Catholics, Christians as a whole, oftentimes will look aghast at Islam and look and say, see, they can't even keep their house in order. Look at the way they split shortly after their faith was formed. But as we're going to find out, as we already looked in the last podcast, the Roman Catholics have nothing to brag about. As the Eastern half broke off from then in 10, in 1054 AD, and we haven't even remotely got to the world of Protestantism yet, right? Which is yet another break. From Christianity or Roman Catholicism. So this is the reason why today you have the Shiites and you have the Sunnis, predominantly each faith occupying Iran and Iraq, as well as other countries around the world. So when you hear that a country is primarily made up of Muslim believers, the question you need to ask is, are they equally Shiite and Sunni? Is one uh, group dominant versus the other? Because oftentimes this can be a source of conflict as it was then all the way through to today in the 21st century. We're going to end our focus on Islam and not end it not ended entirely, of course, any more than we ended our discussion on Christianity, but ending in terms of looking at its impact with the rise of Muhammad, as we did again with Jesus prior, in prior podcasts. So let's look, therefore, at what's making the news today, which is the chief understanding between Christians and Muslims. First off, Islam denies the existence of the Holy Trinity, the idea of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, too, though, Muslims are not the only ones that have a hard time with that. Roman Catholic believers don't quite understand it. Heck, that's the reason why in Roman Catholicism it's called Literally, the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Mystery meaning there isn't one explanation. There's no one book that anyone can point to or go to and say, okay, well, this is what Jesus meant when he referred to the Father and then himself as the Son and stay put because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to guide you and sanctify you. Really? How are we with our human minds supposed to grapple something like that? Again, Jesus made and left no clear explanation of that, or if it did, it certainly wasn't copied from that that time forward. It is not, though, please just to dispel this myth, just because Islam denies the existence of the Holy Trinity, Muhammad did not deny the existence of Jesus. In fact, Muhammad put Jesus very, very high up in his own esteem, as he called Jesus a very important prophet but he was not divine. Muhammad's not knocking Jesus. He is simply stating that this was an extremely important man in the successive line of the likes of Abraham and Moses and all the way through. Very important. In fact, Muhammad also thinks Mary, the mother of God, was important. One could argue that in some cases, the Muslims put more importance on Mary than even roman catholics do mary the mother of god is mentioned a handful of times in the new testament of the bible in the quran mary has her own chapter so again it's no christians have no position or no place to point to the muslims and say they are knocking our faith they don't hold what we hold in just as high esteem Careful how you define esteem. Careful what you mean when you say hold up higher. Muhammad also never meant to create something that would displace Judaism or Christianity. He had no intention on doing that. Rather, he thought that his visions and what he wrote down to leave to his followers was only supplementing it. For a further explanation of that, again, read No God But God, starting on pages 103, through to page 105 for, again, a fleshed-out explanation of that. But Muhammad, again, he never meant to create something that would displace Judaism or Christianity, only to supplement it. That parallels, again, the life of Jesus Christ. He wasn't looking to replace Judaism. He was looking to supplement it, to extend it. That's the reason why for literally centuries after the death of Jesus, the Jews would go to their weekly services, But the followers of Jesus would then have a service that followed that, reenacting Jesus' final hour. Because Jesus, again, was a prophet. To Christians, though, he was divine. Heck, he was the Son of God. But the Jews deny that, and so do the Muslims. There's no right or wrong here. Rather, ladies and gentlemen, this is the price we pay for, quote-unquote, that cure-all, For polytheism and paganism, the idea of Roman mythology and Greek mythology where you have a menu of all your gods and goddesses you can choose from, the followers of monotheism claim to have the recipe to eliminate all that confusion and infighting over gods and goddesses and which one was more important than the other and who was the son of who and the daughter of who eliminates all that with monotheism. See, isn't it a cure-all except for one problem? The whole idea of a monotheistic religion is the followers of those monotheistic faiths feel that their God is the right God. Every other one is less than, subservient to, not as important. So the very seeds that make monotheism truly easier to follow in the sense of one God also lays the seeds for future conflict. As I end this in my classes, I also end the discussion on Islam here with you in the sense that I pulled out up a map of the world and I asked my students if they had breakfast this morning. And of course, almost all students raise their hand. And I point to the country of Japan. Arbitrarily, I'm just pointing anywhere. Japan, Siberia, South Africa. Did they have breakfast this morning, do you think? When their day dawns, do they have breakfast? The, hand, the head's not up and down, yeah. Do they wear something on their lower extremities called pants or a dress or something like that? No, not their heads. Do they get from point A to point B in some form of transportation versus walking, taking somehow some kind of automotive transportation or public transportation? Yeah, they're not heads. Okay, so in other words, we all have these common denominators. Yeah, yeah. where are you going with this? <laughs> I get the looks. But here's the thing. In South Africa, for breakfast, they had something different than we ate. Japan eats something different, by and large, than what we Americans eat. But we all have that first meal. Does it really matter whether the Japanese eat whatever they eat and the Chinese eat what they do? And the French eat what they do. And Americans, we plow into whatever uh, keeps us happy in the morning. No. Is it a reason to go to war? Of course not. It's a personal choice. How one gets from point A to point B. Who cares if the majority of citizens in one country walk versus another who bike or another who takes a car and another who relies on public transportation? We all go about our lives doing our own things in our own way. None of that needs to be a source of conflict. In fact, when was the last time in this 6,000 wars and, and recorded in human history, when was the last time you heard about two countries going to war because of what they ate in the morning or how they got from point A to point B? It's a personal choice. And then I leave my classes with this. What could possibly be a more personal choice than one's faith? How personal is that decision who do you bend your knee to who do you make your sign of the faith to could anything be more personal and important to you than that even atheists and agnostics ladies and gentlemen that is still a faith in their own way that is a faith and there is no right For any one person to point to any of these other faiths and say that your God is more important than any of the others. Or the agnostic who acknowledges that there are gods, but personally doesn't believe. They're questioning. What's wrong with that? Muhammad and Jesus both had no problems with questioners. They don't want prisoners following them. They want believers following them. Therefore, as we move forward throughout our podcasts on world history, sadly, war is going to creep back in. And until we get to the 20th century, land will be the number one item that is fought over, as it had been since humans were walking upright. But faith, or religion as we're going to find, is catching up awfully fast to be a distant number two to a close number two, to eventually being more important than land. Stick with me as we again discuss those conflicts as we move on. Lastly, please remember this scenario. For the Roman Catholic Crusader, who was fighting and killing the Orthodox, fighting and killing the Muslims in the name of their God, that Jesus Christ is the one And I am a Christian fighter to the Muslims who behead Christians, to the Jews who persecute Christians and vice versa, all in the name of their God, that they are doing right for their God. Their God would want them to do that for the Jews, Yahweh, for the Muslims, Allah, for the Christians, Roman Catholics, God. Can you imagine all three of those fighters, the Jewish fighter, the Christian warrior, and the Muslim soldier? Can you imagine the three of them getting killed by the enemy? And as they die, they smile to themselves because they know that to the end, they followed the right God, the right Yahweh, the right Allah. Can you imagine as they breathe their last and they're on that up escalator towards their idea of paradise or heaven? And there, as they open their eyes, the soul of their body opens their eyes, and they see their God at the top. The Christian rises up tall because God's in front of him. The Muslim raises up tall because there's Allah. And the Jew stands up nice and tall because there's Yahweh. And ironically enough, they look to their left and their right, and they see those other soldiers, those other religious warriors that were blind to the right faith. Wait a minute. They're on the up escalator too. Where could they possibly be going? I was killing them because they were following the wrong God, yet we're all going in the same direction. Whoops. All of a sudden, each one of those warriors gets to the foot of their God. Can you imagine looking up? Imagine these three soldiers looking up as the Jew sees Yahweh, the Christian sees God, and the Muslim sees Allah. And it's the exact same deity. They're all going to the exact same place. Each one of those had no problem with people of another nation choosing what they want to eat, what they want to dress in, how they want to go around and mobilize in their society. They left those people to their own decisions. But when it came to God, they could not except any other human being following any other God but their God, Yahweh but their Yahweh, Allah but their Allah. Can you imagine now who gets the last laugh when they realized that they were all on the exact same side of the fence, just choosing to practice their faith in their own chosen way? What book, what divine book, ever points out that another faith is bad? If you happen to come across that, let me know. So that brings us again to our end of the introduction of Islam to the Western world. This next part that we're going to get into, we're moving further now or further ahead into feudalism. The age of feudalism, I mean, you've heard about these terms before, and you might cringe. Why? Because I've been doing this again for 20 years, not including teaching high school. And the moment I bring up the age of manorialism or feudalism, students, they just recoil. They just want to go underneath their chairs and hold their breaths until this part of the discussion on world history is over. But I get that. I was that way, too. But please note. That is, we get into this age of feudalistic society. Part of the reason why people cringe and they consider this to be one of the most difficult or abstract parts of world or human history to get their arms around is because of the following: It is laden with new definitions. There are more definitions to try to describe the way humans were living than in any other age that we have discussed thus far. So what I'm going to do as we round out this podcast is I'm just going to introduce the new terms that I'll be using as we discuss the the Middle Ages. And then I'm going to leave you with two overarching ideas, sadly, realities, that are going to impact this human population, even though at this time, they don't see it. Now, again, when I say this time, we're getting into the seven and 800s now AD. So again, I'm gonna unpack some of these def- these terms and definitions, we're gonna get those done and behind us. If you feel you need to review these at any time, again, just remember to come back to this podcast, you're coming back to podcast number 20, right at about 18 minutes in. So the first off, is what we're looking at here with this idea of feudalism. Let's just simply unpack this $25 academic term and call it what it is. It was a term to identify any pre-capitalist or pre-industrial society. A term used to identify society before the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, as we know, is going to be beyond a massive break or cause a break within the way the human population lived their lives before the industrial revolution to the way they lived after. To the point, it is very difficult to point out what's the same other than humans still need to breathe, still need food, and still need water. Other than that, almost everything changes in human society with the onset of the industrial revolution. So that's what feudalism is. So when you hear about a feudalistic story, a feudalistic idea, you don't wonder okay, now how late into the Industrial Revolution was. uh uh-uh, this is all pre-Industrial Revolution. What it looked at, what feudalism looked at, was the rights, powers, and lifestyles, largely of the military elite. Why the focus on the military? Because the Roman Empire's gone, as we talked about. The Greek Empire, their heyday is here and gone. People still need a sense of security, though. That need hasn't changed. They need security as to personal security, that I'm not gonna be preyed upon by another population, that I'm not gonna be the victim of a crime. So that's what I mean by personal security. Security as to know that there is a reasonable expectation where my next meal is gonna be coming from, where my fresh water supply is located. It is the military elite That's going to give the confidence to the people in this pre-industrial society, but post-Roman Empire society. There is, again, no massive emperor that is controlling the Roman army to establish what what used to be once taken for granted. Those days are gone. People are looking a lot more local for their sources of security. So that's feudalism. You're also gonna hear about this term Lord. And I also wanna distinguish here because I've been using Lord in the sense of religion. Lord in this case, in feudalistic society, by and large, there would only be one Lord. He would be the owner of the massive estate or the small estate or whatever size it might be. He is the owner. Away, and again, I say he, because we have no record that there were female Lords of the estate, at least not in any kind of consistency. That said, where we seek and understand that term today is for those of you that do not own your home or have a mortgage with an arrangement through a bank, then you are living in a place that is owned by somebody else, by another owner. And that person that you write that monthly check to, to use that space, of course, is your landlord. And that's where we get that term from. Another term is feud or fief, F-E-U-D or fief, F-I-E-F. That was simply a tract of land within an estate that a vassal, the last term here, that a vassal would lease from the Lord. So the Lord has this land, and imagine this land has 10 different parts to it, all roughly equal size. One part of that land, as we'll talk about later, is going to be given to the Roman Catholic Church in Western European society, that is. So one part of that land goes to the church. Another part or two parts of that land is for the military. Another part would be where the Lord lives. And the rest of it would be leased to this new class of people called vassals. So again, a vassal is one who leases that feud or that tract of land from the Lord. Okay, why would the vassal do this? Why wouldn't the vassal say, this is my land and I'm gonna, I dare you to try to get anything out of it from me because the vassal wants military protection. The vassal needs a sense of security. Then what does the landlord get out of it? They would get a percentage of the crop or a percentage of the revenue gained of whatever commodity that vassal and his or her family produced for the good of the feudal estate. So, that's what a vassal is. So, just knowing those terms again. And when I introduce and I use those terms again for the first time, I will just do a quick reminder of what we're talking about when we mention this term. So, those are the terms I just want to throw out there right in the beginning. Again, if you're following uh, this, my podcast through a world history textbook, you're not going to see those terms jumbled up or, you know, packed into a couple of paragraphs, they introduce them throughout those chapters. But I want to, what I do is I upload it or front load it. So you've got the terms down. So that when you come across it, you already have a, a working idea of what those are, what those terms mean. So those are the terms. The last thing here, as we will then end our podcast with today, is looking at these two overarching ideas that became To bear or became a reality with the closing of or fall of the Roman Empire. And that's the following. The number one principle that we're going to see is that with distance came weakness, thus, political power became more local. With distance came weakness, thus, political power and by extension, military control, became more local. Let's unpack that. That's the reason why these individuals, these John and Jane Does, who make up more than 95% of the Western world society, that's the reason why they enter into vassalship, why they enter into this agreement with a lord, that has the command of a strong military arm with a good reputation, why these vassals are looking and willing to give up owning anything is because with distance comes weakness. They need a source of political and military power. And the closer that is to you, the more secure you feel. That dovetails to the second principle, and why the Middle Ages raged with this age of feudalism. Due to eventual advances and changes in warfare, defense becomes more expensive. Due to the advances and changes in how humans fight, defense becomes more expensive. Once again, let's unpack that. This skyrocketing reality is a principle that never ceases or even slows down. Consider this. You remember in those world history podcasts talking about the campaigns of Alexander and Hannibal. By and large folks, Hannibal and Alexander didn't have weapons, individual weapons that your average commoner couldn't have made themselves or bought themselves. No, a commoner can't get the number of swords that Alexander had and the number of shields that Hannibal had. No, no, not. But again, for personal self defense, there was no human being in the ancient world that couldn't afford the average weapon than any military commander could use with their own two arms and their own two feet and their own two hands, right? But that changes as time goes on. And again, it's a skyrocketing reality that never stops or even slows down. Consider in terms of America's defense. One of the reasons why the United States is considered to have a world-class military is because of the types of weapons we have at our disposal. Let's just take two quick examples. Consider the B-2 stealth bomber. Now, this is a plane that is practically 40-year-old technology now, yet still evades enemy radar enemy radars cannot see an american stealth bomber coming across its its flight path coming into its airspace because the actual signature on a b2 stealth bomber the visible signature that is picked up by radar is the size of a hummingbird so if enemy radar had the kind of intricacies and extreme definition that on its radar, it could pick up something the size of a hummingbird, then yes, the B-2 stealth bomber could be detected by our enemies because it is only 99% invisible to radar, not 100%. But consider this, if an enemy radar can pick up something the size of a hummingbird, can you imagine the way the enemy's radar would be loaded with all sorts of flying animals and insects? That's why the B-2 stealth bomber is invisible in the air. And that doesn't come cheaply. $737 million per plane. The average commoner no longer can afford their own defense. That's in the air. Let's go into the water. And that's where, as my eyes have personally seen it when it first came out, the USS Jimmy Carter, the latest generation in stealth submarine technology. At $3 billion per submarine, this is a submarine that can go into any of our enemy's waters, go under any of our enemy's ships, around, over, and under any of our enemy's submarines, and they'll never know we were there. That comes with a price tag. This is what I mean when I said, due to the eventual advances and changes in warfare, defense will become more expensive. Yes, I'm using the extreme examples here in the 21st century, but that reality begins to start taking root in the early Middle Ages. And as time goes on and these advances and changes in warfare continue, Individual peoples will be coming together to form their own areas on this world that they will call home, on this planet, on the surface that they will call home, and they will collectively dig into their pockets to build for the defense system, for the common defense of everybody that lives within the confines of this place they call home. So again, in this podcast, we unpacked those terms as we enter into the age of feudalism. We looked at those two overarching principles that are going to impact the lives of the human population that lives in the Western world. The idea that with distance came weakness and advances and changes in warfare, defense becomes more and more expensive. When we come back, we're going to look, therefore, at how one particular family, who largely was a nobody, but ended up becoming one of the most important and powerful families ever to be known and discussed in the age that we call the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. So thank you again for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com, and email me with any questions, comments, and or book recommendations that you might have. If you liked what was discussed too, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.